this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. All right. Matthew 21, we're going to be going uh, 1 through 11. Um, we're not going to get to the temple. Um, looking forward to doing that. Maybe Christmas Eve, we'll get to that. Um, so as they approach, Jesus um, is on his way into Jerusalem. Um, and so we're, we're coming to his uh, final moments before the crucifixion. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So we can, we can still see that many people don't know who he actually is. As they say, he's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So the next three events that we'll be covering um, are all prophetic acts, uh, meaning that they fulfill prop prophecies that occurred in the Old Testament, specifically in Hosea, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So as we go through these next three events, I'll be pointing out um, how these are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. So if we go to the map of uh, Bethany and Bethphage, were you there already? Okay, right. It's all right. All right, so over here um, in the right, you see Bethany and Bethphage, and this is his route. Um, and if you can see, Bethphage is on the top of the Mount of Olives. This is his route into uh, Jerusalem. Um, this first event, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, is called the Triumphal Entry, which... I wish it was called triumphant entry because I've been tripping up on triumphal entry all week because I always think about triumphal entry. Um, but this story takes place between Bethany and Bethphage along the route into Jerusalem. Uh, so the Roman military road from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 17 miles long. And as it's going, it, it climbs 3,000 feet. Um, and so it passes through both of these towns, which are on the southeast side of the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives actually sits 300 feet higher than the Temple Mount. So from this vantage point, um, there's a great panoramic view of the city. If you can go to that next picture, this is what he, this is like what he would be looking at, except for the gold dome thing. That wouldn't be there. Okay. Um, this is what he would be looking at. So you can see he's getting ready to go into the temple. He's getting ready to go into Jerusalem. Uh, and so you can just imagine, you know, as one before they're about to go to war or go before hardship, just kind of sizing up the area and, and maybe just sitting more, more likely sitting there and just talking to God, praying over the city, praying over what is about to happen. So this is what he would be looking at um, and talking to the father. Uh, in the book of Mark, he says, when they reach the towns of Bethany and Bethphage, so this conversation occurs, um, actually, it's, this is where the conversation occurs, where he sends the di disciples ahead, in between Bethany and Bethphage. Um, and, but they're very close to the city limits, I guess you would say, um, of Bethphage. And so he sends them on to Bethphage. And you can go to the next picture. 
Um, and, and it's very close. This whole area uh, is very close. So we'll talk about this. We're going to be talking about Jerusalem. In the next few chapters, you'll see he's in Jerusalem, then he's in Bethany, then he's in Bethphage. And sometimes you could think like, oh, this is out of order or what's happening here. But um, these small towns right outside of Jerusalem, there's so many pilgrims coming in for the Passover. Everyone's not staying in Jerusalem. Um, they're staying in these small towns. So Jerusalem is the city proper, but these are like the suburbs. Bethany and Bethphage are like the suburbs. So you would be, he was traveling in, in and out, going into the city and back out. I grew up in Orlando, and I had a lot of friends that lived in Orlando with me. Um, but when I would say, hey, mom, can you just take me over to Dan's house? And she'd be like, he lives really far away. And I'd be like, well, he lived, we both live in Orlando. But he lives in Longwood, right? There's Longwood, there's Apopka, there's Wakaiba. And so it's all Orlando, and that's kind of what's happening here when they're talking about going into Bethphage and Bethany and Jerusalem. To the people, it's kind of like the same area. So he's sitting atop the Mount of Olives. Um, you can go back to that picture. And he's looking down upon the city. And he would be looking directly at the gate uh, through which he would enter the eastern gate. And you can go to um, the next one. So that the taller part of the wall, that's the eastern gate. Um, and you can go closer to it now. That's a close-up view. I did a lot of walking to get there to take that picture for you guys. But that's a closer uh, view of the Eastern Gate. So this gate, we're going to talk a lot about this gate because it has uh, a lot of historical significance and great significance for the second coming as well. Um, but first, before we get into, get into that, let's look at the directions that he gives the disciples. He tells them to go into the village. They're going to find a donkey and a colt or with her foal. He tells them to untie them and bring them to him. And if anyone says anything to them about it, to tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. I'm assuming he probably sent James and John or Peter because this takes, I, this would make me nervous. If someone was like, hey, I need you to go do this. I'm like, does anyone know this is about to happen? No. Mm. Yeah, I remember when we were kids, um, I don't know if anybody else did this, but it was really hip in our friend circle, in my mom's friend circle. We would um, sneak into the Disney hotels and go swimming. And, and all my sisters were cool with it, but I was not. Um, I always, the whole time we were there, I felt like I'm not supposed to be here. There is security. And like, so we, I remember, uh, one, you know, we'd pull up and I'd be like, well, uh, pull up to the gate and the guy would be like, hey, what are you guys doing here? And my, my mom would be like, oh, we're here to eat. And, um, and I'd be looking at my sisters and I'd be like, what is going on? And they were like, we're sneaking in. We didn't tell you because mom said you freak out. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I am freaking out. I don't even want to be here. And she's like, she said that you wouldn't come. And I was like, I wouldn't come. I don't want to break the rules, right? So this would make me very nervous to go just take this donkey, right? And just trust that, that the guy's going to be cool with it. Um, some commentators find this so, this, this is so funny that like Christian commentators write books and believe that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, but they have like reasons these, these things happened. They're like, this is probably what happened. So some commentators said that Jesus arranged this agreement. He prearranged this. Okay. And the Lord needs them is the secret password for them to let go of the donkey. Right. And it's like, I haven't seen a single minute when Jesus is alone to go work this out. And I don't know how you can believe that like he did miracles and he resurrect like he resurrected from death, but he couldn't work out this donkey thing without a password. Right? I mean, if if you're a Christian, I mean, it's most likely that the people the people knew who the disciples were 
And when they say the Lord needs them, like we know who this is, it's Jesus, right? But even if not, if you're a Christian, you've had a situation in your life, if you're a close follower of Jesus, where there's an opportunity to do something, maybe simple, something's asked of you, and you're like, I can do this, or I cannot do this, but I feel like God's leading me to do it. And obviously this person, whoever they are, they, they, uh, let it, they let it happen. They're like, yeah, take the donkey and her foal. And this moment will fulfill prophecy um, that the Jews have hoped in and looked for for so long. And it's arriving, this moment of prophecy. That's just a beautiful thing about doing simple things for God when he asks you or when a moment comes to you where you can either do or not do. Like you could, you could be like changing the course of history while you're participating in what Jesus is doing. It could be a grand thing, seems small. But it's a grand thing. This is a fulfillment of prophecy, an amazing thing. And all this person does is have to say, yes, you can, you can use the donkey. I mean, you're never going to know the grand plan with your small sacrifices. Sometimes you can see it way later, but you're not always going to know in that moment. And the prophecy being fulfilled was written in Zechariah 9.9. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, if you look in Mark and Luke, it doesn't say, it, does, it only mentions the colt because um, they're just simply recording the facts. He's riding on the colt. Um, in some versions, it says um, they laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. And like some commentators went into how he could like Jean-Claude Van Damme straddle these two donk this, these two donkeys, which would look utterly ridiculous, <laughs> you know, just like totally splitsville on the donkeys. That's not what happened. When it says he's, they, they put the clothes on them and sat on them, he, the them is the close. Um, so not double donkey, okay? So, but he's fulfilling prophecy in this. He's fulfilling prophecy uh, to the Jews. And that's why Matthew is writing down that there were two animals. Uh, so Luke tells us that he rode in on a colt that had never been ridden, okay? By Jewish law, a mother donkey had to be sold with her foal. A mother and her foal were seen as a single unit, especially in a situation like this. You're riding into a very, very busy and crowded city street. It had been very loud and chaotic. And the mother uh, donkey would have been used in any situation. Anytime a colt is going in for the first time, the mother donkey would have been there to lead the colt, to walk beside the colt, to keep it calm. So he's riding on the colt, fulfilling prophecy. Um, that was, he was riding on a colt that had never been ridden, but it was being led by its mother. Um, and it's also important that the colt um, has never been ridden, uh, as that is in line with Old Testament rules for livestock used in sacred purposes. Um, a red heifer that was used in the ceremonies of cleansing had to have never had a yoke laid upon them. So even in that colt, never having been rid before, it, it is in line with the Old Testament laws. And if you want to check me on that, it's Numbers 19.2 and Deuteronomy 21.3. So you can go back to the next slide. Is that confusing when I've put it multiple times in order and then I say go back? It's, I know, I'm sorry. All right. So he enters the city through the, actually go the closer one. No, no. Don't do anything. It's going to throw me off. All right. So he enters the city through the eastern gate. And if you notice, I don't know if any of you noticed, this gate didn't seem very inviting, right? It's closed. Can everyone see that? It's more like a wall than a gate. 
Okay, so here's a little history. The old city of Jerusalem is surrounded by a large wall, and there's eight major gates. The eastern gate, facing the Mount of Olives, is the only one that is sealed shut. Um, It's reputed to be the oldest gate of the old city, um, with times of construction varying from 520 A.D. uh, or, um, that's good enough for me, (coughs) And, and sometimes it's called the Gate of Mercy, but it gives the most direct access uh, to the Jewish temple, um, the closest one, the temple. So it's sealed up because the Ottomans, an Ottoman sultan in 1541, sealed it. Um, he sealed it. Um, I'm going to read it as it says here rather than trying to explain. I'm not that good with words. Um, so the gate was closed originally in 810. Um, by the Muslims, and then the the Crusaders came and opened it in 1102, and then it was closed again by the Ottomans, by a guy named Saladin, after defeating the Crusaders in 1187 and gaining control of the city of Jerusalem. The final sealing shut of the gate, as completed by the Sultan, is a defensive move by the Sultan. Um, This is, they looked at Jewish literature, the Bible, and saw that Jesus is supposed to re-enter the city through the eastern gate. That's when he comes back. That is where he's supposed to go, uh, through the eastern gate. So they sealed the gate with 16 feet of cement so that Jesus, when he returns, could not go through the gate. But that's not the only thing that they did. If you go to the next one, I don't know if you guys saw this. You see all those little like cement structures in front of the gate? You want to see that? Okay, those are graves. They're Muslim graves. And they're put there intentionally in front of that eastern gate. Because even the Muslims see Jesus as a priest and king. They know the prophecy. He's going to come back. He's going to come back through that gate. But being a priest... Jewish priests are forbidden to walk on the graves of the dead. If you ever go to Israel and you happen, if you're like on your sightseeing tour, end up in a cemetery somehow, you'll see these like metallic uh, boardwalk structures that are raised and above the graves so that when a priest comes to bless them or you go to see them, you don't have to walk amongst them. You're walking over them. Because the Jewish priests and rabbis, uh, because of Old Testament law, cannot walk over the graves. So the Muslims put graves in front of the eastern gate so Jesus cannot walk through there. Okay? It's crazy. Um, Isn't that wild? Um, And this is not just like, you know, disclaimer. I'm not trying to like build like Muslim hate or controversy. Um, Muslims have been raised up in this religion, okay? Um, And so, and and honestly, they need Jesus just as much as anybody. So it's not trying to um, build some kind of controversy or hate for Muslims, but it is to point out, you need to wake up to the fact that the devil has been building trenches long before you were born. The devil has been building trenches long before you were born. So let's talk about this prophecy that they believe speaks of the Eastern Gate, why they did all this. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout out some scripture verses. I'm not going to read them all. Um, if you're taking notes, I'll try to do it slowly. But So the book of Ezekiel contains several references to a gate that faces east, east multiple easts. Supernatural, guys. Just go with it. 
In Ezekiel 10, 18 and 19, the prophet sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple through the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. The glory then moves east of the city to the Mount of Olives in Ezekiel eleven twenty three, And later, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord return to the temple via the gate facing east. Ezekiel 43, 1 through 5. So then in Ezekiel 44, 1 and 2, we read the prophecy of the gate being closed. It says, the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, the one facing east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, the gate is to remain shut. It must not be opened. No one may enter through it. It is to remain shut because the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered through it. And then finally, in Ezekiel 46, 12, we read that there is one person, a prince, who may enter via the eastern gate. When the prince provides a freewill offering to the Lord, the gate facing east is to be opened for him. Then he shall go out, and after he has gone out, the gate will be shut. So some interpret these passages in Ezekiel as references to the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of the Lord coming into the temple is the triumphal entry. The command to permanently shut the gate because the Lord has entered it is seen as a prediction of the walling up of the eastern gate, which we see now by the Muslims in AD 1540. And finally, the prince to whom the gate will be opened is seen as Christ himself at the, as a second coming. The prince of peace will return to the Mount of Olives and enter Jerusalem by way of the reopened eastern gate. So have no fear. God already prophesied the gate would be closed. Isn't that funny that they're like, we got to stop this Jesus. Let's do exactly what God said would happen, right? It's just like, I know you, you know you. I know that you know that I know you, right? But it's these prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling. He's fulfilling these prophecies. And because the Jews know these prophecies, that is why the people are very excited when he's coming in. At this point, Jesus is no longer beating around the bush as to who he is. His time has come. And this crowd is made up of people who are coming in with him, not necessarily followers. Some are following him. Uh, some are followers. Some are just following him. But, you know, when there's like a, a huge thing going on, someone important, people just go to see. People just go to see. And so there's a huge crowd going in, and there's a huge crowd in the city coming out to see what all the ruckus is about. Uh, who, who is this who has come um, into the city. And they know he's coming because it's, it's a small area. Like I said, with Jerusalem, Bethphage, and Bethany, word has reached the city that Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, ha has come and that he's going to enter the city. So they're aware that he's coming. And so this crowd comes together behind him, beside him, and in front of him, begin to lay their clothes and cut branches off trees and lay them before him as one would greet royalty. Uh, this is why we celebrate Palm Sunday. And they begin to shout, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Um, and this term, Hosanna, actually means deliver us or save us now. Um, but at this point in time, um, it had actually taken on a new meaning, kind of like we have all kinds of expressions that have taken on new meanings, that if someone was learning our language, it wouldn't quite make sense, like break a leg, right? So Hosanna has taken on an, an, a dual expression, um, meaning something more similar to praise or hail, like all hail King Jesus. Copyright, Jeremy Riddle. So they're shouting out praise 
hail and save us, right? They're giving him honor and glory. They're praising him and crying out for deliverance at the same time, not from sin. They're not crying out for deliverance from sin. They're crying out for deliverance from their Roman oppressors. And this has caused quite the commotion. Um, I don't know if we can really imagine how packed Jerusalem was at the time, but I'm going to try to like give you a picture of this. 30 years after this moment, a Roman governor took a census, uh, not of people, but of lambs slain in Jerusalem over the Passover. And it came to about 250,000 lambs slain over the Passover. Okay, And a Passover regulation was that each lamb was to represent a party of 10. So you'd get up to the gate and they say, yeah, party of 10, uh, party of 10 with the lamb, meaning that there were about two and a half million people in Jerusalem. And it's a small, that old city is a small area. Two and a half million people packed in there, shouting and carrying on and coming out of their houses and making their way to this gate and saying, what is going on? It, it, is, it is quite the commotion. It's quite the scene. And Matthew actually says the whole city shook. The Greek word he uses is If you're taking notes, it's E-S. And all these slides, I didn't even do the word. E-S-I-E-S-T-H-I-E. Oh, get that last I, just E. Um, which means the effects of a strong earthquake. So he's saying the city shook like there was a physical earthquake going on. But it doesn't just mean, the word doesn't just mean like physically, like there was a physical shaking going on. It was like the whole city was shaken by his coming. Everyone was aware of his coming. People were nervous about his coming. People were excited about his coming. Everyone had a reaction to, to Jesus coming and what was happening. It, it, not, just, not just the city was shaking with the noise and the movement, but hearts were shaking. Everyone knew or believed this was either really good or really bad, but no one was just like, eh, I'm just going to go back inside. Every, everything was shaken by his coming, which makes sense, right? If the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords enters the city, who could expect anything less than a shaking? When, when God enters the picture, when, when Jesus enters the scene, things begin to shake. Not always physically for us, but they shake in our hearts. He comes, he, he, he has not, but he has not come, and we have to know this too, when, when things begin to shake in us. Jesus has not come to do as they want him to do. They have an expectation that the Messiah is coming to free them from, them from their Roman oppressors, which he has not come to do. They thought he came to bring war, but he didn't. When a king rode in on a donkey, it means that he came meekly, he came in peace. If a foreign king rode into your city, on a horse, it means he brought war. He came with demands. If a foreign king rode into your city at this time on a donkey, it means he came in peace. And Jesus comes in riding a donkey, coming in peace, coming meekly. King Solomon did the same thing. He rode into Gihon on a donkey when he was to be anointed as king. And Jesus, they call him the son of David. He's the anointed son of David. 
Um, and he comes this time, when he comes into the city in a spirit of peace, riding a donkey, he comes as Solomon came. So he comes in the spirit of peace. Solomon, the name Solomon comes from the same root as Shalom. Solomon, Shalom, peace. And this time when Jesus comes into the city, he comes in the spirit of Solomon, the spirit of peace. But next time, he comes in the spirit of David. Next time, he comes in the spirit of the warrior. But no matter how he comes, everything is shaken up. Don't think everyone was excited. Shaking, shaking causes turbulence. Um, some people probably didn't, I imagine some people didn't like the racket. I would have maybe been one of those people. I'm like, what is going on out there? Why can't everyone just be quiet, right? I'm just trying to enjoy my Passover quietly by myself, right? Some people were like, and some people, some people, this, this, this attitude, some people were like, it might be difficult to uh, understand, but some people were like, who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy think he is coming in and everyone's making a big hubbub about this Jesus, but he's just a guy from Nazareth. Has anything good come out of Nazareth? Who does this guy think he is? Who is he claiming to be? Who is this guy coming in fulfilling prophecy? Is he doing this on purpose? Is he trying to take advantage of us? Who is this guy? And like the people of Israel, when Jesus steps into the city, we have to decide how do we receive Jesus? How do we receive Jesus? Are we the people that throw our clothes on the ground and worship him? The king has come. And then if he's like, well, I haven't come to do what you wanted me to do. Well, then forget it. Or if we come and say the king has come to do what he wants to do. Or do we come and say, man, this Jesus is asking for a lot of change. This Jesus, I don't know what, what, what he's come to do. I don't know if I like what he's come to do. I don't know if I'm down with what he's come to do. I've accepted living this way. This is good enough for me. I don't necessarily want all this turbulence going on in my life that Jesus brings. Because Jesus brings turbulence. Jesus ends relationships. Jesus changes relationships. Jesus changes everything. And we are fine accepting him. We love Easter. We love Christmas. We love celebrating Jesus as our savior. Where we fall is in the celebrating of him as our Lord in our day-to-day lives. He's not just our savior. He is our savior and it's amazing. And we have reason to celebrate He has delivered us from sin, not what we asked for, not what they asked for, but what he came to do, which was far greater than what they expected. When Jesus comes to shake, he comes to do something far greater than you expect of him. Something that you could not foresee. He doesn't come to join us in our lives. We like Jesus, come join me in my life and walk beside me, footsteps in the sand, you and me, right? I just came up with that song, copyright, that melody. Uh, don't worry, I wouldn't record that. That's not a good song. Um, but he, he doesn't come to do what we want him to do. He doesn't come to do what we want him to do. He comes to be Lord of our lives. When he enters in, he comes to be the Lord. He comes to be our savior, but he comes to be the Lord. He can save us and we want that. We all want a savior. We don't all want a Lord. The Israelites are overjoyed to have the savior finally coming if He's going to do what they want and expect of him. And we, no matter how we can say that's not us, it is often us. We want Jesus to bless us. We want us to walk with us. We want him to to do things for our children and do things for us. When Jesus says, I want you to give me this, we say, well, hold up. 
I want you to change this. Well, hold up. Jesus as the Savior delivers us from the consequences of sin. But Jesus as Lord delivers us from sin. Because only when he's Lord do we make the sacrifices to give things up, to make the changes he wants, to become a different person than, he, than we thought we could be even, even better than we thought we could be. When Jesus came into my life, I had to change a lot of things. Some things came quickly. Some things took time. But the only way we're delivered from sin, not the consequences of sin, is giving him lordship over our lives. And it's kind of funny, actually, if you think about it, that the Israelites, like if God is coming, coming, stepping into the city, and you see God, it's, it's so, and you come to know this God through the Bible, it's kind of silly to expect that God would do what I want him to do, or what I expect of him, being only a man. To think this being greater than I would do things as I expect. That's, that's precisely what makes him God-like. It's precisely what is more evidence that he's the son of God, that he did not do anything as we expected or as the Jews thought he should. In fact, if he was just a fraud, he would just do what they expected of him. Be like, he's it. He, he's the fulfillment of prophecy as I saw it. But Jesus comes into our lives to bring freedom. And the freedom is not over with when we accept him as savior. It's a continuous process. That freedom comes as we accept him as Lord of our lives every single day. And that's, that's reason to celebrate. That's reason to celebrate. There's a reason to celebrate that he is Lord of our lives. Not just, there's reason to celebrate, not just that he is our savior, but that he is the Lord of our lives the daily lordship of Jesus, when he begins to shake, I promise you, it may not feel good at first. It might cause some disruption. It might be painful. It might cause you to give up some things you don't want to give up. It might ruin some relationships you love. It might really, really hurt deeply. It's not always easy, but it is good. It is good. The lordship, the lordship of Jesus Christ brings freedom. That's what we don't understand as humans, and that's what, what people don't like. But the lordship of Jesus Christ is what brings freedom. When he comes as our savior, he frees us from the consequences of sin. But as we, as we make him lord of our lives in the day-to-day, -day, that brings freedom from, from our troubles, from our sins, from our failures, from our faults. He can lead us out of them, but we have to follow. We have to follow. So this Christmas season, as we celebrate Jesus being born to be the savior of the earth, don't just make it about a day. It's every day. Celebrate the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he sits on the throne, that he has a plan for your life, that he knows where he's going. He knows where you want to go. He knows the desires of your heart, and he knows what's good for you. And any shaking he does, no matter how painful or how long, is because of his love for you and his desire to bring you freedom. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that you're Lord of my life, Lord. And I know I, know I don't always honor you as Lord of my life. 
I know I don't always listen. Lord, and I repent of that. But I thank you for coming and dying on the cross and rising again, Lord. I thank you for your deliverance from sin. And I thank you for the lordship over my life. I thank you that you sit on the throne. Help us to be an obedient people. Help us to serve you all the days of our life, every day of our life, that we could really experience the true freedom that you bring. We love you, Jesus. We give you all honor and all glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.